Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Next week in Palo Alto, tech executives that work on trust and safety issues will gather for the inaugural TrustCon, which bills itself as the first global conference dedicated to trust and safety professionals. The conference, which takes place on the 27th and 28th of September, is hosted by the Trust and Safety Professional Association. On the 29th and 30th, the Stanford Internet Observatory and the Trust and Safety Foundation will host a two-day conference focusing on cutting-edge research in trust and safety. As content moderation and other trust and safety issues have been, to put it mildly, at the fore of tech concerns over the last few years, it's interesting to take a step back and look at the various conferences, professional organizations, and research communities that have emerged to address this broad and challenging set of subjects. To get a sense of where trust and safety is as a field at this moment in time, I spoke to three individuals involved in it, each coming from different perspectives. The leader of an industry-funded consortium, the Digital Trust and Safety Partnership, an independent membership organization of trust and safety professionals, the Integrity Institute, and a leader in the community of academic researchers studying trust and safety issues at Stanford. In the interests of full disclosure, I should mention that Stanford Internet Observatory Research Manager Renee DeResta is on the board of Tech Policy Press. I'm Shelby Grossman, and I'm a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory. I'm David Sullivan, and I'm the Executive Director at the Digital Trust and Safety Partnership. I'm Jeff Allen, co-founder and chief research officer of the Integrity Institute. So I'm very grateful to the three of you for joining me today. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the field of trust and safety, where we've got to with it. There are a couple of major events that are happening out on the West Coast at the end of this month, a conference and a a research symposium that are both focused on trust and safety issues. So it felt like a good time to me to somewhat take stock of where the field is. I mean, I know just from my teaching that trust and safety has become a kind of more coherent career in many ways that I now have students who have come through studying issues around uh, tech and society and who can look forward to perhaps moving into trust and safety organizations and having a kind of you know robust career in those areas. So that's another thing that perhaps we'll get into a little bit. Um, but perhaps first, does anyone want to just preview for us what's happening at the end of this month on the West Coast? Sure. So uh, let me also be clear. I'm not an organizer uh, of either conference, but I'm an enthusiastic uh, participant. But uh, there are two conferences the first is TrustCon. That's the uh, professional conference um, organized by the Trust and Safety Professional Association, which is another one of the many organizations that have cropped up in the last few years, which I think attest to the importance of trust and safety, both within the tech industry and within broader society. So that one is really geared at the practitioners inside companies or working with companies on this issue of trust and safety. And the other one is the Trust and Safety Research Conference, which is co-hosted by the Stanford Internet Observatory and the Trust and Safety Foundation. Um, We're hoping that this is the first annual Trust and Safety Research Conference, and it aims to showcase cutting-edge trust and safety research that's happening both 
inside tech platforms um, and also in academia and to try to encourage research collaborations across academia and industry. David, I want to ask you first just to describe your organization, uh, which has been around for a bit, but you know, somewhat, I suppose, new, depending on how you define new these days. What is it? What does it get up to? And uh, what are you doing on a regular basis? Sure. So the Digital Trust and Safety Partnership uh, launched in February of 2021. Um, so about 18 months ago, uh, I joined in August of last year as the founding executive director. Uh, and we bring together technology companies providing a wide range of digital products and services to align around a set of best practices for trust and safety and uh, a commitment to having those best practices be assessed um, first through self-assessments and ultimately by independent third-party assessments uh, to be able to demonstrate that companies really are taking trust and safety seriously and sort of evolving practices uh, in this field. And I think the, the most important thing to emphasize uh, is that as we do this, we are trying to bring companies together around this framework of practices. Uh, it's not about content standards. It's not trying about trying to pursue a common uh, definition to hate speech across uh, many different platforms in many different places around the world, um, but saying that there's a set of practices that are sort of descriptive of what companies are doing and which can evolve to be state-of-the-art over time from product development through to transparency uh, that represent, you know, a kind of a common approach to this without trying to align everybody around the same types of content that should be allowed. And Jeff, we've had you on the podcast before, but you've had some recent developments with the Integrity Institute, some progress and some forward momentum of what you're doing, but perhaps you could remind the listener uh, what it is and, and what you're doing. Of course. Uh, the Integrity Institute is part community, part think tank. Um, on, on the community side, we're a professional community of what we call integrity professionals. These are people who have actual experience you know, working for social media companies on the platforms tackling the, the issues of harmful content, right? That are, is so much on the news today. So, you know, they're the people who have actually fought misinformation or hate speech um, or self-harm content from within the platforms themselves. We've gathered together to form a think tank. Um, and on the think tanks uh, side of things, we're, we're really trying to develop the discipline, right? Uh, similarly to the DS DTSP, we're working on trying to figure out what are the consensus points of integrity professionals that we can all sort of agree on. You know, these are, you know, good practices when it comes to uh, responsibly designing ranking systems or being transparent with society about how the platform works and how harmful content um, is spread on it and seen on it. Um, and then sharing that expertise with the outside world. So we do a lot of briefings for policymakers, for academics, for uh, civic societies, um, as well as companies too. And Shelby, perhaps you could just give us your perspective on the research community devoted to trust and safety issues. I understand there's a you know a new journal uh, that with, for the first time is is specifically focused on uh, trust and safety and thriving interests in this area across multiple dis disciplines from communications through to cybersecurity. Yeah. So, I mean, by background, I'm a political scientist. And before I started this job at the Stanford Internet Observatory, I actually had never heard the phrase trust and safety before. And I think that's kind of a common thing in academia. People in different disciplines use kind of different terms to refer to like the study of online harm. But a lot of academics actually aren't familiar with the phrase trust and safety. So one of and that causes like real problems because a political scientist might be studying how misinformation spreads 
And there's all this really cool computer science work on this same topic that's being published in computer science journals, but they're just like not coming across it. These two disciplines aren't speaking to each other. So about a year and a half ago, we launched this new journal, the Journal of Online Trust and Safety, that's trying to solve some of these problems. So we aim to publish like cutting edge, really rigorous empirical research on online harm from many different um, disciplines. And then also we aim to publish internal research that's taking place kind of at the platforms along with kind of collaborations from these, these two entities. It's going pretty well, it's open source. Um, we have a really fast peer review process to try to solve some problems that plague academic publishing and get like timely research out there quickly without sacrificing rigor. Um, so we've had a bunch of issues. We're actually launching our next uh, issue next week. Um, and we're really excited about it. I want to maybe just sort of pause and ask you each to kind of characterize where you think, quote unquote, trust and safety is at the moment uh, as a field. I mean, this journal is new. These organizations are new. Um, this effort is new on some level. And yet the problems have been with us for a bit. And they continue to sort of seem to continue to get worse. I mean, there was just yesterday a big hearing, of course, uh, in the Senate uh, where chief product officers for some of the major platforms testified, I would say it was a you know generally as contentious a hearing as uh, any of the prior uh, tech hearings have been. A lot of concern about online harms ranging from privacy and security issues on through to misinformation, hate fuel to violent extremism, a uh, range of things. Where are we on trust and safety in September of 2022 as the industry? plans to gather in the Bay Area. Yeah, so so it's it's really interesting, right? Because trust and safety is both old and new at the same time. And I think um, you know, probably what's 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 most new about it is just society realizing how important it is. I like to point when it comes to integrity work, which is our sort of term for it, but obviously it's like very adjacent to trust and safety. The, the, the first good piece of integrity work that I like to point to is actually Larry Page and Sergey Brin's 1998 paper in Google. Um, and in the appendix where they talk about the page rank algorithm, they actually say like, hey, you know, search engines are ranking on search engines is valuable to people. And so people are going to try to manipulate the search engines in order to rank highly on it for their own self-interest. And here are ways that we can, you know, prevent search engines from being easily gamed by bad actors of, very, of all sorts. And they focus on the financial aspects of it, right? Like it's very, it's very lucrative to rank for, you know, best shoes to buy. Um, and so obviously like marketers are going to try and take advantage of that. But, you know, the principles apply to foreign interference, to people trying to manipulate the public over, you know, all sorts of issues. Um, and so the, you know, integrity thinking and trust and safety thinking dates back, you know, all the way back to the beginning of the internet. But we're really having a moment now over the past couple of years where society at large is, is sort of waking up that like, ah, yes, like, this, it, it is time for this for this practice to go from sort of this thing that exists at companies but isn't very formalized to what will be a very established discipline um, in the future. One thing that's really interesting and I, that I think I learned from the, the first issue of the uh, Journal of Online Trust and Safety is that the term trust and safety actually started, I think, at eBay in the very early 2000s, which I think really speaks to Jeff's anecdote about uh, Google in terms of the financial aspect of this, that even before the social internet, you know, you sort of had companies whose, you know, their business relied on trust that the marketplace could work and safety in terms of preventing fraud, where a lot of this thinking um, came from. Um, uh, so the, some of this goes back quite a long time. 
at the same time, I want to say, like, there's been an enormous sea change um, in the amount of information, as well as, of course, a, a societal concern about some of these issues um, in the last few years. Uh, one of the things that I think about is when um, I started in my previous organization, the Global Network Initiative, back in 2011, 2012, um, when companies were first starting to report information about uh, government requests for user data and uh, content takedowns, no company was willing to uh, report information about how they were enforcing their community standards or terms of service. And the first public reports about that only were issued in 2018. Um, so we only have about four years of really public reporting about some of these really thorny issues about how companies moderate their services. Uh, and there's been a just a, a tremendous amount of information that's come out since. And that information begets more questions and, you know, contested ideas about how do we define this term or how do we, what are we talking about when we use this other term and is this data meaningful? Um, but it, there has been a really enormous change. I think that the primary point also going back to, to Jeff is really about formalizing and maturing. And here's, that's our focus at DTSP is to say, there's a common set of practices companies can use. There's documentation of those practices, subjecting those practices um, to assessments and audits. Some of this is going to come from regulatory requirements that are happening around the world in states here in the U.S., uh, less so from Congress uh, these days. Uh, but some of it's going to come from uh, professional standards, which is something that you see in all sorts of other industries as they mature over time. Shelby, do you feel as if the research community around trust and safety has a kind of common set of goals? You mentioned, of course, there are multiple disciplines at play here. Is there a sense that there's a kind of common thrust? I don't think there's a common thrust, but I think that's maybe okay. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that you know different disciplines have their own approaches to studying online harms. I think it prevents groupthink. I think the the problem is when different disciplines aren't aware that like other disciplines are studying something similar just from kind of a different a different angle. I mean, my hope is that, you know, with this conference, with the journal that we're trying to at least make the disciplines more aware of research that each other is doing that other disciplines are doing. And I think, you know, one of the other things that we're trying to do with the journal is I think there are a lot of really important online harms where if you were to study them, it's not really clear where you would publish your findings. And as an academic, publications are everything. So, you know, that's how you get professionally rewarded. So if there's no place to publish, you know, really important research on child safety, you're just not going to like do research on that topic. So our hope is that over time we incentivize research on some of these understudied but really important online harms. So let me ask you just a kind of couple of diagnostic questions about this broader community concerned with trust and safety issues from, from research to industry to outside civil society groups like yours, Jeff. You know, one of the problems that we know is uh, currently an issue with regard to trust and safety uh, at the major tech platforms, of course, is that a lot of the focus is on the United States, uh, a lot of the focus is on uh, English language. Do you feel that this general effort uh, to kind of institutionalize, as it were, or to formalize or to somehow mature the industry uh, is moving quickly enough to kind of take that into account? 
this is a really important question. And, you know, a question that, that we could be asking the platforms is, you know, what is the process by which you determine that your product is ready to launch in a particular country? I think probably in the early days of, of social media, probably that preparedness checklist was like, does the language locale, you know, render properly in the app? And if so, then we're good to go. But clearly there's a lot more that needs to be in that checklist. Hopefully we are building in that direction. I think there, there's plenty of examples, you know, that you can point to anecdotally of, of, of companies taking it seriously internationally. I think there's also plenty of examples that you can point to of companies not properly prioritizing it internationally. And I think um, so, so, so it is very much a mixed bag and, and there really isn't a sort of accepted industry standard for like, what does it look like to launch responsibly in a particular region? David, is your membership showing signs of becoming more global? Absolutely. Um, our aspiration is to be a, a global partnership and to set industry standards globally. I think there's a recognition that there is a, a lot more work to be done to ensure that you know uh, content policies and practices are adopted and executed, you know, sort of across multiple languages in an equitable way. That is a really uh, a big challenge, and there needs to be a lot more resourcing uh, dedicated to it. I think that what I would say is that I've worked with a lot of uh, academics and civil society organizations and activists from many countries around the world who have been focused on these issues and pressing uh, technology companies about them um, for years or decades in some cases. And I think it's, it's important that we not lose sight of, and that we make sure we kind of elevate and listen to and, and, and actually learn from, and not just listen to them, but actually <laughs> respond to them with meaningful changes. And I think that there is more attention to that. I would say, I think that there's a tendency in uh, not just technology companies, companies in general, um, that if there's you know uh, someone trying to raise an issue in India or Nigeria, um, and they're successful in even getting to someone from a company to talk to them, it's probably going to be a public policy person uh, responsible for that part of the world. It, it, I think it has been a challenge for those people to talk to the people like like somebody like Jeff or working inside a company, uh, and I think that the development of this field um, as both an academic and an industry and a civil society world, hopefully that's starting to change and we can foster conversations between people who are working on trust and safety, on like engineering, on technical uh, issues, as well as, as policy issues, and, and not just have activists being talk talking to people who are coming from a government relations or public policy perspective. Shelby, in the research community uh, that you're building, perhaps around the conference that's upcoming or uh, so far with regard to submissions to the journal, uh, do, you, do you feel that a sort of a global community coming together? I think we're moving in that direction, but it's definitely an issue. Um, so with the journal, the overwhelming um, number of submissions that we get are about studying the U.S. and, and Western countries. Um, for the conference, we got about 275 applications to present and it wasn't um, it wasn't as bad, but still like the majority of the proposals related to to Western contexts. Um, but I think we're definitely seeing some some change there. So I mean, in some in some trust and safety areas, I actually think there's like an incredible focus on non-Western contexts. So for example, when Meta and Twitter suspend these foreign influence operations, um, they're almost always targeting you know non-Western countries. Um, so I think I think that's 
that's a positive sign. With a notable exception, I suppose, of a campaign that I think SIO and uh, Graphica revealed uh, just a couple of weeks ago that appeared to be the first one known of, of uh, Western origin. Let me ask you this, uh, you know, th- there's probably somebody listening to this um, saying, you know, social media, big tech firms, trust and safety, you know, oxymoron, these things don't go together. Aren't we all just a, a little bit like, I suppose, folks in suits with Geiger counters walking around, you know, measuring things at a nuclear blast site. These social media platforms are out of control. There's lots of harm. Uh, very little of it is addressed. And, uh, you know, we've still got long, such a long way to go. I don't know. How would you, how would you kind of address that if, if you were encountering that particular pessimist on the street? We're leading a partnership of technology companies uh, as a deliberately industry organization, I get understandable skepticism. Um, I think the fundamental thing to remember is that, you know, these companies are businesses and, you know, the unintended consequences of when people are able to abuse and misuse their services to cause all different types of harms. Those are serious problems. Um, But ultimately, if they're not addressed, people will leave. <laughs> they will find other platforms. Um, so, you know, there is, you know, a, a moral imperative for companies to do the right thing here, but there is also a business case for it. Uh, and the fact that they are, you know, in, investing substantial time and energy and resources, whether it's in our partnership or other efforts, um, I think does speak um, to a seriousness with which companies are taking it. That said, you know, the level of effort does not always result in the outcomes uh, that we want to see. And we see this, you know, in countless places around the world. My personal view is that the scale at which companies operate is not an excuse uh, for not getting these things right, but um, it does just speak to the the size of the challenges here um, that are going to take time uh, to be fully addressed. Uh, Jeff, you worked inside Facebook and worked on an integrity team. Do you have a sense of uh, that platform or others? I'm not forcing you to necessarily comment uh, on anyone in particular. How far are we off the degree to which these things should be resourced versus where they are at the moment? Yeah, I'll I'll counter your skeptic take with uh, with another skeptic take, right? I think um, there's two sort of common sort of uh, attacks that that trust and safety workers and integrity workers can get um, internally uh, and and both based on misconceptions, of course, right? So I think internally, when you're working at the company, um, integrity teams and trust and safety teams have to be worried about being viewed as a cost center, um, as about being the ones that are nagging the product teams to slow down. You know, it's not uncommon, right, for growth work and engagement work to have tension with trust and safety work. And if you're not structuring the teams right, right, it's not it's not impossible to have those teams budding heads on the regular, um, and and for you know the growth and engagement teams to view them as a cost center that's just dragging them down. And then yeah, you're exactly right. On the outside, you know, integrity teams and trust and safety teams uh, are sometimes you know inappropriately viewed as sort of PR teams. You know, they're they're the band aid on the open wound, and you know they're there to make the company look like they're trying to solve the problem, but without actually doing it. And I think to lean on your analogy, like it's it's a 
there definitely is room for concern on the outside, right? Like, like your analogy of like, you know, are we just people with Geiger counters? Yeah. It's like, there, there are a lot of reporting mechanisms that are just, you know, look at all these Geiger counters we have. We have so many Geiger counters without actually getting to the problem of like, okay, but like, where is the radiation coming from? And like, why is it being produced? Um, and, and that is of course, like really where we need to get to uh, when it comes to transparency. But I think on the business incentive side, it is just wrong that, that integrity teams and trust and TSC teams are, are cost centers, right? There is room for, for tension here. And I think the tension is really short-term growth for the business versus long-term growth for the business. I think um, short-term growth, you know, is you will see more tension between, you know, what the trust and safety teams are doing and what the growth teams are doing. But long-term, um, you know, thinking more long-term about the health of the business over long-term, growing the business over long-term, that does skew things more towards the trust and safety side. And so I think what successful companies um, will be doing here is figuring actually how to find alignment between the trust and safety teams and the growth teams so that it's really like growth through integrity, growth with integrity, you know, which is which is going to separate the companies that are still here 10 years from now from the companies that fold three years from now. And there was some discussion in that hearing yesterday uh, about whether essentially uh, trust and safety goals are incentivized uh, in these companies. I think you know, Chris Cox at Facebook in particular was asked whether, given that they had shut down a responsible innovation team, and Chris Cox said, of course, that everybody at Facebook or Meta generally is incentivized uh, to pursue trust and safety. And so he was asked, you know, um, are they remunerated? Uh, are they are they measured against those goals? And I think the answer, unfortunately, right now is is not yet or no. Uh, but Shelby, I want to give you an opportunity on this broader question. Yeah, I think this Geiger counter critique is important to address. So as like an academic group that does not take funding from platforms, but collaborates with platforms in various ways, we get a couple of interesting critiques that I've thought a lot about. So, you know, one thing that we do is, as I mentioned, you know, when platforms suspend these like foreign influence operations, Meta and Twitter will sometimes kind of give us a heads up and we'll write like an independent report about the about the network and kind of release it at the same time that the platform announces the, the takedown. The one critique that we get is, aren't you just acting as a kind of PR tool for the, the platforms? You know, you're helping them publicize the network that they are willing to, to publicize. And I think when I hear this, my like thought is, what's the alternative? Like, would you prefer a world where they're just not sharing these networks with independent research groups? Um, and kind of similarly, I haven't heard this critique yet, but I'm kind of prepared for it because this Journal of Online Trust and Safety, because we have published research from platforms and we're actually going to be publishing more research next week from big platforms, um, I'm prepared for the critique of, you know, isn't your journal just acting as, a, again, a PR platform for, for these platforms? And again, I just think, like, would you rather that these platforms be doing this kind of often really rigorous, like, internal trust and safety research and then not sharing it with the world. Um, so that's my my response to that. Let me ask you then a, a question, and all of you are welcome to get onto this. I mean, I, I don't, David, I don't think it necessarily makes sense for you, given you know the nature of your organization and how it's structured. This question doesn't really make any sense. But Shelby, as you think about that, as you think about this kind of reliance on uh, tech firms, it's not just money, of course. It, as you say, it's data. Uh, in some cases, access other perhaps forms of relationship that could uh, exert influence over the way that you do what you do. How do you 
guard against undue influence from industry? Yeah. So, I mean, we do a lot of research. We put out a lot of research that criticizes these same platforms that are kind of giving us access to these data sets. So, you know, that's one thing I'll say, you know, we put out, we put out a lot of research on self-harm policies at various platforms. And a lot of that work has been critical of some of the groups that we, that we partner with in various ways. And I just think in general, um, it's not, you know, we don't, the only feedback that platforms ever give us on reports is like a request to anonymize an account. They're not, you know, providing ever in any case, any kind of like substantive, you know, edits or anything like that. Yeah. So those are, those are some ways. And all of our partnerships with platforms are formal contracts that are like signed by Stanford university. So, you know, they put in place like all of the standard kind of academic freedom provisions that are required for those kinds of relationships. How about you, Jeff? How do you, as a kind of third party, you know, research and, and community? Yeah, well, we are pretty proud of our independence uh, of the platforms. And, you know, we have, we actually have uh, uh, our oath uh, that, that we ask members to, to take, um, which, and, you know, involves being independent, but also being constructive. And so that's why, you know, a lot of our research is, okay, here's this problem, but also here's some examples of, of pathways you can go to start tackling this problem. Um, and I think, you know, just, just pairing, pairing the criticism, right, with solutions is an important step towards, you know, maintaining that independence, but also maintaining that credibility um, within the platform. So I want to ask a, a question about sort of the U.S. Uh, context for some of this. Again, at the hearing yesterday, you know, there was certainly concern over the trust and safety efforts of the platforms from both sides of the aisle. But I think it's fair to say uh, that there are different concerns on the right and that the two sides of the sort of political spectrum in this country have different issues with the tech platforms. And, you know, I know that there could be a kind of a contingent way of looking at trust and safety activity given those asymmetries that kind of regard it as a sort of political project in some way, or that's tinged with, with the politics, uh, even if it doesn't intend to. And that, that seems to be a kind of core tension in some of these hearings. In yesterday's hearing in the, in the Senate, you know, even in, in the morning when you had the experts uh, who were former employees of the platform speaking, um, you know, they were doing their best to say, you know, I never saw decisions being taken, for instance, about content moderation policies or specific content moderation decisions that were politically motivated. Uh, and yet what you're hearing from the other side is that we see an asymmetry in the application of your policies. So how do you, how do you think that trust and safety folks can manage that going forward? And does that become a kind of problem in the future if, if that phenomenon continues to, to play out? I think that there definitely is a, a risk, and, and we're probably already here, where a lot of this work is being politicized, right? Like for, for 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 political reasons. I think the proper way to navigate this is increased transparency, right? Both sides are, are are saying, you know, it's it's our side that's being penalized, and it's because they're hearing from their side when it gets penalized, and they don't hear from the other side. You know, when a when a content creator or a publication that is on one side of the aisle, you know, gets taken down, they don't go to the other side of the aisle representatives to complain about it. They go to the representatives on their side of the aisle, and so each one says like, oh, they're they're attacking us, and it's all biased. You know, I think there was one moment when they even talked about like uh, bias in the fact checkers, 
which, you know, if you actually study the work that fact checkers do, they're fact checking both sides, you know, they're, they're dinging both sides. Um, I think it's, it's mostly a bias. It's, it's, it's a bias in what they hear and the, and the stories they hear. Um, and it is because we don't quite have enough transparency. And when you're working on these platforms from the outside, really all you can kind of do is just gather anecdotes, you know, and, and kind of the best practice is to gather enough anecdotes so it starts to look systematic, but you're still gathering anecdotes. And it, it takes a lot of work to make sure that your process for gathering the anecdotes isn't biased in itself. And so, so hopefully increased transparency will help here. And, and another thing to think about is, you know, if, if you're worried about the platforms being biased, remember that the platforms are global companies, right? And they're operating in countries where they don't even understand the political context, let alone understand it enough to be biased one way or the other, right? And so, you know, it's important for the platforms to be building processes that work when they are completely ignorant of like the political situation that's going on, right? And still able to operate in a fair way, right? Obviously, like operating in a fair way means learning enough so that you're not completely indirect, uh, ignorant of the, the local situation. But building up processes that are robust, you know, to operate when you aren't experts on the ground and, and don't have any bias, don't have enough the capacity to have any bias. Having more transparency into what those processes look like, right? And also having more transparencies in how they're applied and what the impact of it is will definitely be one path uh, forward in here. Yeah, I agree with what Jeff was saying. So my team was part of this thing called the Election Integrity Partnership in, in 2020 that monitored um, social media platforms for misleading narratives related to the 2020 elections. And through that work, you know, we can, we have some summary statistics about, you know, X percent of the misleading narratives that we saw on Facebook or Twitter were right-leaning versus left-leaning. But I think the thing that I find really frustrating is we, to the extent that we have those numbers, it's for platforms that had really accessible APIs that made it possible for us to, to capture those statistics. Um, you know, we weren't able to do that, for example, for, for TikTok, um, because it was just so much easier to search for these narratives um, using CrowdTangle or using the, the Twitter API. And so it was just really frustrating. I mean, kind of understandably from like a rational choice perspective to watch um, Meta disband the, the CrowdTangle team because, you know, they were getting all this negative publicity because they were making it so easy for people to, to find, you know, misleading content on their on their platforms. So I think Things like the Platform Transparency and Accountability Act just make a lot of sense because they would require all platforms to share certain types of information with qualified researchers, which would just kind of level the playing field and, and solve this problem. Um, and then the only other thing I'll say is that I think there's, you know, a lot of focus about political bias in the U.S., but it'd be great, you know, per your earlier question, Justin, about, um, about you know, the international context for there to be more research about the extent to which there's bias and moderation in, in other countries that it's really hard to do. You know, we don't know a lot about like who the content moderators are for content that is in languages that aren't very widely spoken. So I think that type of information is important. Just want to push, uh, David, you maybe on this same question, but maybe in a slightly more specific way. Um, there were a couple of questions in the Senate hearing yesterday um, that got around to the question of whether platform executives, uh, quote unquote, collude on decisions they might take around content moderation or policy. And, you know, you're running an organization where uh, policy executives from the platforms talk to each other, share information, you know, generally kind of, I'm sure, uh, open up on some level about uh, the challenges that they're facing. Do you worry about potentially being kind of drawn into uh, some conspiracy theory with regard to uh, how these things work. 
Um, well, like any, I think, um, industry uh, organization, we have robust sort of antitrust compliance uh, concerns to make sure that we are, you know, managing the conversations uh, that we have uh, the right way. Um, but I think that any initiative in this space, including all the work, all, all of our work, you know, in this conversation, and anyone who's touching upon these issues at all, sort of risks being. I think you have to think about how can your work potentially be weaponized by some sort of bad actor, not unlike the way trust and safety teams inside companies have to think about how their products can be abused or misused. I would say a couple things. So um, this summer we released a report on the the first evaluations of 10 of our members. Uh, that report, uh, it doesn't say that you know Meta is doing this and Microsoft is doing that. It aggregates information and, and it provides kind of a starting point for discussions about how mature different practices are. Uh, and sort of going back to points that both Jeff and Shelby had made, the least mature practices that companies themselves assessed to be the case was um, a particularly around um, support to academics and researchers um, uh, and more broadly work with external organizations, whether that's fact checkers, human rights and civil society organizations, um, whether that's getting user input into how policies get developed um, and how they are enforced. Um, And I think that there's just so much of this work that has been close hold inside companies, particularly because they are worried about how bad actors can game uh, their systems and their policies and their procedures. Because of that close hold nature, it, it has sort of led to either conspiracy theories or this general lack of transparency that that gives us less information to go on. Um, so these are hard things to think through, but there's a lot of room to increase transparency here. Um, I think one other point just to make on these kind of political divides is that it's easy to say, and I think I've said it in things I've written, you know, that in the United States, uh, Republicans uh, want less content taken down and Democrats want more content taken down. And so while they all agree that something should be done, they can't agree about what to do about it. But I actually think that that is a pretty simplistic view. Uh, and yeah, I think about it, whether you look at um, the progressive side, you have organizations that have long been dedicated to press freedom, uh, human rights who've been you know saying we need to have more uh, transparency and accountability about how companies make these decisions, not have companies taking down content of you know marginalized or vulnerable communities, the content that allows you know organization uh, communities to organize themselves, content documenting human rights abuses in different countries around the world. And you have other organizations saying we need to do something about hate speech and about extremists, you know, right-wing extremists um, here in the United States or elsewhere. And on the conservative side of things, um, while there is a lot of uh, perceptions of bias that I think are not necessarily grounded in empirical studies. You also have organizations, including I think a lot of libertarian organizations that have stuck to their guns and said, actually, this is going against some of the core principles of our political you know, uh, institutions and our side of the world. Uh, and so I, I think that they're, it's more complicated when you duck under the surface and there's there's folks who are making arguments that, are, that may run against the grain of the sort of conventional wisdom on their side of things. And it's worth exploring some of those differences. And that companies should actually be talking to all of those folks to have a better sense of how they can manage these challenges. 
I'll just say that I agree that I think it's important to have like a diverse array of civil society groups in this space that have different perspectives about about what should be done. I don't think it'd be healthy if like all academic groups and all civil society groups in this space had the same ideas about what should change about content moderation. I'll ask you all just uh, one last question. Um, one of the things we've been covering a lot in the podcast uh, is, you know, platform policies around elections, you know, with regard to the upcoming midterms, been a lot of announcements over the last few weeks about that. Of course, there are other elections that are happening in the world. Uh, Brazil is a particular uh, point of concern. And a lot of folks are looking at, at disinformation and some of the same sounding kinds of threats uh, from the incumbent there that sound very similar to uh, the former president uh, here in the 2020 cycle. How are you all addressing uh, election integrity issues in your respective efforts? And will it be a significant part of the discussion at the conference, Shelby? The Stanford Internet Observatory is, again, part of the election integrity partnership um, for the for the midterms. So we're working with um, the University of Washington to continue to um, monitor misleading narratives. And so we're going to start kind of putting out some some work related to that. David, are you all addressing election integrity issues, civic integrity issues uh, in your organization? Our approach is to be agnostic to sort of specific types of content risks um, to allow companies to sort of anticipate whatever is the risks, you know, to their users, to people uh, arising from their particular product or service. Um, That said, something we have been thinking about and something that's actually um, coming up in terms of requirements uh, in the Digital Services Act uh, in the EU is for companies and for uh, the digital services industry to develop crisis protocols uh, that they can use. And uh, there's been a lot of work and a lot that's already done in this space when it comes to terrorism and violent extremism. The Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism has a crisis protocol that they employ. Uh, But I think that there is room for the industry to think about other crisis protocols, uh, whether that's something generic that could be adapted to specific circumstances. But when you look at elections is, I think, one of the greatest areas of focus and concern for, you know, trust and safety teams inside companies and where collaborative thinking uh, really could benefit the industry as a whole. Um, I think armed conflict is another area um, where these kinds of protocols um, could be a valuable kind of tool in the toolkit. At the Integrity Institute, this is definitely something that we care about a ton. Obviously, like a, an important, you know, an important point in the in the Integrity Institute's sort of history before, you know, before it was ever founded actually dates back to the Civic Integrity team at Facebook. Um, and we have tons of members that have, you know, worked inside the platforms trying to protect elections and, and trying to predict, prevent any sort of manipulation or, or, you know, harmful activity around elections. So we have a ton of members that have experience here. We have a ton of members who like still care about it very passionately. We have members that are, you know, working on it right now. Um, um, for the current cycles. And uh, I definitely will say stay tuned for a lot of uh, uh, election work and, and election-related content from us. And and also going forward, right? I mean, the midterms are obviously going to be uh, uh, leading into 2024 very, very soon. Um, and the international elections like does not stop with, you know, Brazil. It doesn't, you know, we had the Philippines earlier um, and we're going to have a wave. And uh, we have, we are lucky to have Katie Harbath as one of our fellows uh, who's been leading a lot of efforts uh, in the election space, um, including with like the bipartisan um, policy center 
And actually, she has a lot of fun work tracking the announcements of the platforms and, and what actions and policies they are putting into place for the midterms. Um, and so, you know, we've been doing a lot of work around the elections, uh, and, and it's definitely going to continue. So I'm going to ask you all last question, and maybe it's an opportunity to, if, if there's something you wanted to say but didn't get in to mention, um, but I just want to ask you to cast your minds forward. Uh, you know, we kind of, the premise of this conversation was that trust and safety, while it's been around for a while, while it's uh, certainly different forms on the internet and in digital uh, commerce and, and digital media for some time, uh, it feels like a, a sort of practice or a set of practices that are maybe beginning to mature um, or professionalize in, in a new way. If you cast your minds forward five, 10 years, what do you think are the sorts of problems you'll be working on then? Maybe I have two things to say on this. So first, my team is increasingly starting research projects that are not related to information integrity. Um, so I think there's just been, and I think it's great that there's been an increasing number of academics and civil society groups that are interested in misinformation and disinformation. And we're definitely still doing a lot of work in that space, particularly around the U.S. elections. Um, but we're also trying to really start up like some robust research projects, for example, on child safety and self-harm, that kind of stuff. And then the other thing I'll say is that, um, so my uh, the director of the Internet Observatory, Alex Namos, teaches a, a class in the computer science department at Stanford called Trust and Safety Engineering. Um, and the same time that he teaches that, I teach a sister course in the political science department that's basically on kind of the politics of, of trust and safety issues. Um, and so the goal of this course is primarily to encourage undergraduates who are thinking about maybe starting their own startup or going to work at a tech company to just kind of be thoughtful about the ways in which products that they're working on could be, you know, causing human harm and to try to get ahead of, of those issues. But also we get a bunch of PhD students in these classes. And so our hope is that this inspires more PhD students to want to research online safety issues. So I, I think there's there's two aspects of this. Uh, the first is that I hope that, you know, looking ahead, uh, that in some ways we can make trust and safety uh, boring, uh, that uh, <laughs> that uh, there's enough, um, while you're never going to solve these problems because they uh, essentially stem from, from human behavior, um, that, uh, you know, much like something like, say, financial accounting and, you know, financial risk management or something like that. You know, there's all sorts of issues that are happening all the time that people can be concerned about, but uh, the, the sort of nature of that work is kind of accepted and understood and it's, it's, it's used to manage risk. Uh, and it's something that, that is not on the front pages every single day in terms of whether and how to handle this. And that will, will have accepted standards and practices that will be helping companies address this and it will not be sort of the, the point of, of controversy every day and every way. Um, I think the second piece of this is that uh, hopefully uh, years from now we'll be, you know, having a much, much more internationally representative um, set of companies who are providing services to other countries, uh, you know, all around the world who will be thinking about these things, part of the discussion, contributing to the research and that, yeah, this will be much less about a number of U.S. headquartered companies uh, and uh, the impact that they're having around the world and much more, I think, globally and geographically balanced as a discussion. 
I don't know, thinking thinking about the problems five years from now, I think isn't quite as fun as, as maybe thinking about the aspirational hopes uh, five years from now. You know, one thing, one thing, you know, we've, we've definitely seen running the Institute is there's just so many people who really genuinely care about getting this right and are really here for the long haul. Um, that's actually one, one real big takeaway is that, you know, all it, ta- all it takes is one year on a trust and safety team or an integrity team to convert that worker into an integrity professional and being like, ah, actually the real problem I don't want to work on isn't just tech. It's how do we get tech right for society? Um, and we've seen so many people that, you know, have appetite, you know, even when they leave, you know, even when they leave the, 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 the field and go on to some other role in tech, they're like, you know, I'm joining the Institute because I definitely want to keep one foot in this space so that I can come back in later on. And so I definitely think there's a lot of room to be hopeful uh, that, you know, as, as the discipline matures, you know, the, we're already seeing the people mature, right? We're already seeing the people come together and be like, ah, oh, this, this actually does need to be a thing. Um, and so I think there's definitely room to be optimistic that it will become the thing. And, and really the, the, the question isn't, you know, whether or not this will gel into a formalized discipline, but, you know, what is that process going to look like? Who are going to be the voices that are leading that? And where are the ideas going to be coming from about what that should look like? Yeah. And building on something David said, I think one of my hopes for the future is that, so at the moment when when platforms make announcements about like foreign influence operations, it's typically like no longer a scandal. Like the framing isn't, oh my God, there's a foreign influence operation on Twitter. The framing is, oh, this is interesting. You know, Twitter discovered this foreign influence operation in Thailand, what can we learn about Thai politics from this? And I think that's a that's like really been a neat development. And my hope is that we move in that direction for other types of online safety issues where platforms are kind of just as transparent and they're not disincentivized from um, sharing information about what they're finding. Well, I hope uh, I'll have the opportunity to speak to each of you about these issues uh, as this field progresses and as we learn more and as hopefully uh, the dialogue improves uh, over the next few years. So uh, Jeff, David, Shelby, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.